This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. NAFTA negotiations are starting up again in Washington after we failed to reach an agreement before Donald Trump's deadline of last Friday. It comes amid more shocking revelations about Trump's behavior and the workings of his administration in a new book from Bob Woodward of Watergate fame. Now, the book opens with a dramatic scene related to another trade deal, Former Chief Economic Advisor Gary Cohen saw a draft letter he considered dangerous to national security on the Oval Office desk. And according to Woodward, Cohen was, quote, appalled that Trump might sign the letter. And he, quote, stole it off his desk. I wouldn't let him see it. He's never going to see that document. Got to protect the country. What kind of a tone does that set? And of course, Trump famously has a long-standing grievance against Canada. Apparently, we are the bad guys that have been taking advantage of America for years. And in the days leading up to this round of talks, there were quite a number of reports circulating about how members of Congress, leader of big union, Republicans may oppose a deal without Canada. I have to wonder how much of that is wishful thinking as we start or restart these talks. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And first, let's get some expert opinion. We've got Peter Clark, president of Gray Clark, she, I hope I pronounced the last their name there right, and associates. He is one of Canada's most active international trade practitioners. And in Washington, Simon Lester, Associate Director of the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stifel Center for Trade Policy Studies. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. Glad to, glad to be here. Okay, well, let's start in Washington, where the action is. Simon, uh, what is your take? Uh, do you think that uh, the U.S. is in more of a mood to compromise? We know what the sticking points are. Uh, and just the other week, Trump was saying, oh, he's not going to compromise with Canada. I wouldn't say that anyone's in a mood to compromise just yet. I would say that you know negotiators feel like they have to give it everything they have. They have to push this to the limits. They need to go be able to go back to their constituents and say, "I got everything I possibly could out of this." And so, really, we're going to go up until the the last minute, whenever that is. And so, last you know, last Friday there was sort of an artificial deadline that the U.S. and Canada had to make a deal by. But you know, obviously, that wasn't a real deadline. I think that October first or so release of the text, maybe is a more uh, serious deadline, although even then I can imagine there are ways you could extend it a bit. So I think we're going to be, we're going to see the, both sides fighting till the, the very end on, on every little issue, just so they can, like, like I said, tell their constituents, we battled as hard as we could, we got the best deal we possibly could. So, so I, I don't think anyone's ready to compromise just yet, but hopefully they will get there when the real deadline hits. Peter, what's your take? 
Simon has just described how people negotiate trade agreements. You never give up too early. You'll be accused of settling for less than you could have got. So it'll it'll run through for another few weeks anyway. Uh, right, but you're talking about trade agreements. You're talking about diplomacy. This is something else entirely that we're dealing with, is it not? Well, you, you'd be surprised that people actually use diplomacy at times to negotiate trade agreements. Not recently, right? But in the past. Um, is there a, a big importance? I mean, we saw the head of the AFL-CIO, huge union in the United States, say, hey, you know, the way the supply chains are integrated among the three countries, you can't really have a deal without Canada. Simon, is that significant? I, I think that is significant. Um, you know, President Trump and uh, Ambassador Lighthizer have kind of made a play for the, the labor union uh, support in, in the trade area. Um, so it, it, to me, it matters what the AFL had the AFL CIO um, has to say about this. Um, I don't know if the Trump administration is actually going to be able to get uh, labor unions on board, people like Elizabeth Warren on board, but they're trying. Um, and if they could, that would be a significant development. So you know, as opposed to other Republican presidents, it's actually kind of interesting to me how Richard Trumka uh, you know feels about what's going on in the in the NAFTA negotiations. So it, it, it is important and interesting, although. It, it may not be that important for now with the Republican-controlled Congress. If the Democrats win one House of Congress in the midterms, maybe it'll be even more significant. Peter, your take on that? Uh, I think it's a, I think it's important. We have a lot of union input in Canada as well, more than I've ever seen in the past. Uh, the more support they get, the better. Uh, the more chapters they can finish, the easier it is to hide the losses. So I think they'll be they'll be working pretty hard to bring everybody on side. Uh, Canada has been uh, courting or using a charm offensive in the United States with Congress and and business groups. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that works uh, during an election. Well, we we all thought that Justin Trudeau was being very successful in his charm offensive <laughs> against Donald Trump, but that turns out not to be the case. Well, uh, people around uh, the prime minister thought that uh, or were told uh, that uh, Trump liked him like Trudeau. I guess they were wrong. Mm-hmm. Or it doesn't make much of a difference. Uh, he, Trump has his objectives. He's going to push for them as, as hard as he can, and he has a very effective negotiator in Bob Lighthizer. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm getting the sense that, that you see, both of you see this as kind of a normal negotiation and not a case where it's it's something completely different because of Donald Trump. I mean, he has even told, warned Congress not to, quote, interfere in the trade deal, even though it is within their jurisdiction. I think Trump brings a, an element of uh, different di- differentness, if that's a word, uh, if I can make it a word, to, to everything he does. You know, you're never quite sure what he actually thinks. Um, and so he's sort of, you know, tweeting things or saying things that seem to contradict what he said before or what his uh, negotiators are doing. Um, but that's all I think in the background. I think the negotiators, you know, Ambassador Lighthizer, Mr. Freeland, are just sitting down trying to do their work and trying for the most part to, to ignore what he's saying. I mean, I, I do think, and I, you know, Peter's, I think, been doing this longer than I have, and so he might have, you know, more experience with the past negotiations like the original NAFTA or the Canada-US FTA. I mean, it does seem like there is a difference in tone here. 
uh, you know, to, to a degree, um, sort of a more toughness than usual, and this, this, all this rhetoric about, you know, uh, how Canada's been taking advantage of it. Uh, and, you know, that comes mostly from Trump, but, but Lighthizer, to some extent, kind of seems like he buys into it as well. So it, it does seem like the, the U.S., it seems to me the U.S. would be more demanding and less willing to give concessions than in other negotiations. Um, but it, it's not a radical difference. It's just it's more a question of, of degree. Um, but I'd be curious to hear Peter's take on that. Uh, well, what uh, Ambassador Lighthizer is trying to do is rebalance NAFTA. Uh, rebalancing isn't a negotiation, uh, from what I hear from the negotiators. Essentially, it's a take, take, take. Uh, you've treated us badly. We're going to level the playing field, and we're not going to pay for it. So what we have is a negotiation where the best we can do is pay to maintain the status quo. Uh, I, I want to get on something, uh, you know, our, the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister have said they're not going to agree to a bad deal, but... For the first time yesterday, I heard Justin Trudeau talking about cultural industries, which have always been protected here. Um, you know, <laughs> I have to say I do work in a cultural industry, but I haven't heard this discussed up until this point. Is, is this a big sticking point? Our culture industries, maybe our telecom? Well, it's, a, it's an important uh, it's an important. Uh, uh, give, if we do have to give, uh, was fought pretty hard in the Canada-United States Free Trade Agreement. Some people might tell you that it's not really much protection when Canada asserts a right in uh, in paragraph one and the United States asserts their ability to respond in kind uh, in the second paragraph. It's on the, the, that provision in the agreement is only two paragraphs long. So some some might suggest that uh, it doesn't really have much of an impact. We haven't had too many uh, disputes. There was one where there was a Section 301 uh, complaint against uh, the CRTC in Canada, Canadian Radio and Tele. The, please don't use the numbers of sections because our audience uh, well, is okay. familiar. I won't, I won't use the numbers of sections, but the unfair trading practices. Yeah. There was a complaint. Uh, when CRTC uh, uh, took away country music television's franchise in Canada, uh, and there was a bit of a war for about 18 months, and finally country music television bought uh, whatever the maximum was they could buy in in the Shaw the, the Shaw version, and then instead of going from a product where they owned 100% and couldn't advertise. Uh, they, they went to one where they owned nearly 50% and could advertise. So these things do get worked out, but they can take a while. And Simon, how important do you see that? Because uh, again, I haven't heard it mentioned until yesterday, basically. Yeah, I mean, the existing NAFTA has this uh, you know, carve-out for, for cultural goods and services. What, what's not clear to me is what is the scope of, of change that the, the U.S. is looking for here. Um, you know, is it just in specific sectors? Um, do they want to weaken the, the cultural carve-out more broadly? I wouldn't have thought from a U.S. perspective this was the most important issue. Uh, so I, yeah, I was a little surprised to, to hear it come up. I, I just I don't feel like I've heard that much on the U.S. side that we really want to be selling certain, you know, uh, 
music or, or television or services in Canada. I'm not sure what those are. I've heard more about dairy um, and intellectual property. Uh, but, you know, sometimes what gets reported on the media is just sort of happenstance. You know, a reporter happened to ask about a question, and then it came up, and then, you know, we give it undue I- importance. So there's, for example, there's a lot of talk about the Chapter 19 dispute settlement mechanism. I want to hear more about the Chapter 20 dispute settlement mechanism, which is the more basic um, government-to-government complaint mechanism. To me, that, that's really important, and I, I haven't heard anything about it. So, so I do think sometimes the, the reporting of a, one issue over another issue, you know, maybe um, misstates the, the, the importance of it um, for, for the negotiations. Uh, sometimes it's hard to know, really, behind the scenes what is most important to, say, Ambassador Lighthizer or Minister Freeland. Uh, you mentioned dairy, and this is something that, you know, we've heard about endlessly as a huge sticking point. At the end of the day, it accounts for 0.12% of our bilateral trade. It's emotional. Go ahead. Please expand on that. Well, it's emotional because it's a it's a uh, it's a peculiar part of Canadian agriculture. We decided back in the seventies that we would uh, try to limit production uh, in order to avoid competing on subsidies with the uh, with the United States, particularly on dairy. Uh, it's an issue that comes up all the time. Uh, it isn't that big a problem. Uh, you, uh, I think, uh, one of uh, Simon's um, colleagues put, posted something about the actual support to uh, to U.S. dairy dairy industries around the world. They're protected and they're subsidized. So th- this is uh, this is a handy um, whipping child for the negotiations. Uh, it happened in the negotiations with Europe. It happened in the TPP, and the end result was that the that Canada gave up a bit more access to the to its dairy market. And, and that's what I would expect to happen here. Is in the end, Canada gives a, a little bit of access, um, and you know this is one of those issues where it's just going to be kind of one of the last things decided. Uh, there will be some compromise number. Um, that, you know, in, in the sort of the broader scheme of, a, of an entire deal on NAFTA, everyone can hopefully live with and go back and sell to their domestic constituencies. I would have thought that Ambassador Lighthizer would be more interested in getting some movement on a number of intellectual property issues from Canada to keep Senator Hatch happy. And that's right, and he and they've pushed pretty hard on that, and they've put in some they've made some uh, they agreed with Mexico to some terms. I think Canada's going to have a little trouble accepting, and that's that's what I'm one of the areas I'm most interested in. Will Canada be able to give the U.S. what it's asking for on a couple of these intellectual property issues, which are very sensitive um, domestically? Yeah, I would I would have thought dairy they're going to be able to come up with a compromise number, but the intellectual property stuff sounds difficult to me. Although I, I don't know from a Canadian perspective exactly how difficult um, these changes would be. Uh, we only have uh, a short time left in this. What would you say the chances are of reaching an agreement on this? Uh, would you give us a handicap, both of you, before we wrap this up? Uh, I think they're, they're going to reach an agreement, but not for the next month or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I would say, you know, in a month, I think there's a, a better than 50% chance they will reach agreement. At that point, there's a lot of uncertainty for me as how it plays out in the U.S. domestic political process. Um, what is this new Congress going to look like that's supposed to be voting on it? If they've 
come up with a deal that's tailored to the Republicans who are in control, what happens if the Democrats take over? So, so I think we will get a U.S.-Canada-Mexico trade deal. But if you remember, we also had a, a Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP deal, and then the U.S. abandoned it. So you can, you can get the parties to agree, but can you get the U.S. Congress to go along? It can be difficult. Okay. Thank you so much for that. Of course, we're going to be following this very important story very closely. Thank you to Peter Clark and to Simon Lester. Thanks for having me. Okay, great. Thanks for having us. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.